would imagine that all of us in the room could tell a story about dramatic change. We're in a message series called Change, Don't Like It But Need It. I, I bet every one of us in the room could tell a story. It may be a story about yourself. It may be a story about somebody else. But every one of us in this room, we've got at least one story of somebody who has changed radically and dramatically. I have a friend. He's now in his early 70s. And uh, he was born in the Bronx, New York. A good Jewish boy. Went to the good Hebrew schools in New York City. And uh, then he went into the army and actually became an officer in the army, got out of the army, went to New York City, got a job as a businessman, was doing great for a couple of years. And then his whole world just fell apart. Um, The marriage spiraled out of control and, and, and really he spiraled out of control. And I can't even go into all the different immoral and illegal things that took place about the next seven years of his life. Um, but trust me, it, it did not go well. And so at age 40, he leaves New York City and he comes to Memphis, Tennessee. And there's some extended family in Memphis. And while he's there, and this doesn't work either, this works rarely, you know, he's just gone through a divorce and a lot of immoral and illegal things. He meets a lady who just goes through a divorce also. Her husband had an affair and ran off. And, and so this rarely works out, you know, when he's got baggage and she's got baggage. And you put all that baggage together, there's a lot of baggage, right? It just, it just, it doesn't work out. It, it worked out great in this particular case. It worked out really, really well. So he's 49 years old, and he's never been to a Christian service ever in his life, 49 years. And every year in Memphis, at this very large funeral home, there's a Christian service, a sunrise, 7 o'clock sunrise service in Memphis. And um, I got invited to speak for it. It was about three months before the service, and I ran it by the elders thinking they're going to say that's not a good idea because we have a sunrise service. And one of the elders said, I think that's a great, he's a man of great vision. He said, I think that's a great idea. I said, we'll get our youth pastor to do our sunrise service. Let's put Kurt out in the community where he likes to be anyway, and there'll be lots of guests. I thought, that's that's a great idea. So sure enough, I show up at this, you know, huge funeral home, and, and all of a sudden, I had no idea it was as big as it was. Memphis Memorial Gardens, I had no idea it was this huge funeral home. And, and there's 1,500 people there, and they're all in lawn chairs. They're sitting out there. And, and back in the day, I preached from a manuscript. I know you find that really hard to believe, but I would read from a seven- or eight-page manuscript. I got like 20, 25 minutes. I'm in three minutes into this message from all these people, and the wind blows my notes away. And some grave opened up and just swallowed my nose. I I kid you not, they were gone. They were history. And I got 22 more minutes to go without notes. And, you know, if you can't preach on Easter morning, on the resurrection, you need to go do something else, right? And so I I got through it. And an hour and a half later, I'm back at our church preaching, you know, sunrise, not sunrise, but the regular service. Well, they show up. This couple shows up. And, you know, they'd never been to, he'd never been to a Christian service in his entire life. Well, that morning, he's going to get two of them. But it was the exact same sermon. I didn't think anybody would show up from the cemetery to the church. So I'm preaching the exact same sermon. 
And a week later, he calls me. I didn't know they were at our church that morning. A week later, he calls me and he said, hey, I, I heard you out the, at the sunrise service out at the funeral home. And then we came to your church. I heard you. And he said this, and he was dead honest. He said, I guess you Christians only have one message, right? I said, well, actually, you know, I've got a whole bunch of others. He said, well, I heard you twice and you preached the same sermon both times. He said, that, that's okay. And, and a year later, he becomes a Christian. And shortly after that, he gets baptized. I wish I could tell you what happened the next 23 years of his life. He's gone from a guy who was just spiraling out of control where he and his wife, 23, 22 years ago and today, they do everything they can for the kingdom of God. They've leveraged their time. He's had a great business, leveraged his business, leveraged his money, leveraged his resources. And in his philosophy, he said, I got a little bit of time, I got a little bit of money, I got a little bit of talent to be able to leverage things for the kingdom of God. I wish you could see the dramatic impact that this man and this woman have had, and he became an elder. He's now the chairman of the elders of this church. It's, it's an amazing story of how the transformation of this guy's life. As dramatic as a story as that is, it pales in comparison to Saul of Tarsus becoming a Christian. Saul of Tarsus was a blasphemer, and he became a believer. He was a persecutor and he becomes a proclaimer. Our, our character today, it's like, it's like you've got to be kidding me. This is in, an incredible story. If change like that can occur in my friend from the Bronx, New York, my Messianic Jewish buddy, if that change can happen in him, and if that change can happen in Saul of Tarsus, that same change can take place in you. I want you to listen in Acts chapter 9 to the story of Stephen. Joy started it for us with communion today. She did a super job with communion. And I just kind of want to piggyback on where she started. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 and 2 says, Saul was breathing out murderous threats. Now what's taking place here? The background is Stephen was killed. The background is the church is now starting to take off. And all of a sudden, one of the main guys gets killed, Stephen. And Saul is one of the people who's a member of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were trying to knock off this Jewish religion. They were just trying to get rid of it. And so Stephen is stoned. On that day, an incredible persecution breaks out among the church. And this guy named Saul of Tarsus is out to destroy the church. And he's doing a pretty good job. Saul is dragging people out of their homes, dragging your parents out of their homes, dragging your friends out of their homes, and he is imprisoning them, and he's flogging them, and he's killing them. So all this drama is taking place right now. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murders. He wasn't just upset. He was zealous. He was possessed. This was like a burning passion of his life. I'm a good Jewish Pharisee, and I'm going to stamp out, I'm going to personally annihilate this religion. He's breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. The church isn't very big at this point, maybe 25,000. We read of 3,000 baptized on the day of Pentecost, another 5,000 Number a few days later, if you add the wives and about 2.2 kids, you get about 25,000 people. So the church isn't very big. 
And what Saul does is he goes to the high priest, probably the same high priest that crucified Christ, the same high priest who had Stephen Stone, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues. Now, you notice how that's plural? There were lots and lots of synagogues. Synagogues were like little house churches in our vernacular. There was one temple, but there were literally thousands of synagogues. And he asks for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. This is 135 miles away from Jerusalem to Damascus, northeast, 135 miles. The Christians have scattered. The Christians in Jerusalem realize it's not safe, and they then take the gospel throughout the entire known world, and a whole bunch of them landed in Damascus. And so Saul says to the chief priest, give me permission to go to those synagogues, and I'm going to drag those people, those Christians, out of there. So he asked for letters, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way. That's an interesting term, the way. We were not called Christians at first. In fact, the first time you see the word Christian, it was a derogatory term. It was derogatory that they were first called Christians at Anacoc. It wasn't a great term. It was a derogatory. Christian for us is endearing. We're now called believers. But but the first time Christian was used, it was like, there goes those Christians. It wasn't wasn't a great expression. We were called members of the way. And so he asked for letters, if any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. Saul of Tarsus was going to go 135 miles, drag people out of the synagogues who were worshiping Jesus, and make them take a 135-mile trek all the way back to Jerusalem. Look at the next couple of verses. As he neared Damascus on his journey... We think he was on a horse. This is probably how they traveled. A little bit of, they had a little bit of resources. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? Now this word Lord doesn't mean Savior, doesn't mean great person. This word Lord just means like sir. Lord can be translated several different ways, a little Greek word. It really just means like, who are you? You just knocked me off my horse. You just gave me a blinding light. I don't know who you are. Who are you, sir? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You talk about, oh my gosh, this is a big, this, I'm in trouble. Now get up and go in the city and you will be told what to do. Look at the next couple of verses. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but we don't see anybody. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see. He, He will be blind for three days. He will not eat. He will not drink for three days. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind. He did not eat. He did not drink anything. Look at the next verses. In Damascus... Their disciple, there's a disciple named Ananias. So simultaneously, while Saul's being knocked off his horse, we got a vision now going on to a guy named Ananias. So both these things are happening about the same time. The Lord called in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas 
Now, this isn't Judas Iscariot. There were lots of Judases. Judas is a common name, Tom, Dick, Harry. Just go to Judas's house on Straight Street. I always thought that was funny. You know, was there a crooked street around there? I, I, I don't know. Go to the Hairpin Turn Street. I don't know. But Judas is on Straight Street and asked for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands to restore his sight. Look at verse 13. It's a big timeout. Ananias is going, hello, we know about Saul. Everybody's heard of Saul. Everybody knows what Saul did to Stephen. Everybody knows that Saul's persecuted the church. Everybody knows that Saul's destroying the church. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people. It's like he's reminding God. Isn't that funny? Like these are your holy people, God, to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Now, this conversion story is so important that Luke, Dr. Luke, records it in three different ways. He records it in Acts chapter 9, he records it in Acts chapter 22, and he records it in Acts chapter 26. So Ananias, we learn some other details from these other different stories, these other different accounts. And so what we learn is, is that Ananias does go, and Ananias is, you know, faithful and responsible, And so he's sharing like the gospel message in Acts chapter 22, verse 16 with Saul. And here's what he says to Saul. Again, we learn this. There's three accounts of the conversion of Saul, Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 16. And here's here's a detail that we learn in Acts chapter 22. So Ananias, he shares. And now, Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, how is that even possible? How can somebody like Saul or like my buddy from the Bronx, how can somebody have their sins washed away? What does it mean to have your sins washed away? How is that even possible? for what he's done and for what they've done and for what you've done and for for what I've done. You see, at some level, we all have to come to deal with this. We all have to come to grips with this and deal with this. Uh, As children, you know, we we begin to play with sin, right? We begin to dabble with sin. But but now as adults, we we drown in sin, right? As adults, we don't don't play sin. We, we We become sin. And so what do we do with our sins? Now, we know what sins are. They're things that we knew we shouldn't have done. They're, no, they're things that everybody told us not to do. They're things that, that inside of ourselves, it's screaming, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we run through that red light with the gas down 100 miles an hour, and we do it anyway. We, we know exactly what sin is. So we've only got a few choices. Number one, well, maybe I can ignore it. If I ignore it, Maybe if I ignore sin, maybe it will just go away. And so we try to ignore it, and we work really hard at ignoring it. But the more we ignore it, the less we sleep, or we sleep too much. The more we ignore it, the more we eat, or we don't eat enough. Or or the more we ignore it, 
maybe we work too hard or maybe we don't work at all. Or the more we ignore it, we become like clinically depressed or we become codependent or we become passive aggressive. Well, that, that isn't working. The more I try to ignore it, that, that, okay, that won't work. All right, so let me try something else. So if I can't ignore my sin, let me overcompensate. Let me do everything I can. Let me do all the good I can do. Let me pour into all the people I can do. Let me give away all the money I can. Let me help enough old ladies across the street. Let me go on enough mission trips. Let me do everything I possibly can to overcompensate. And so we work so hard. At the end of the day, we still wonder, why do I still feel so bad? So then we just are steeped with guilt and we're steeped with shame. And so what do we do? Well, that doesn't work, so we tried to ignore it. We tried to overcompensate it, and yet we still got all this guilt and shame. So we scratch our heads thinking, what, what do we do next? So the next thing that we try to do is, like, bury it. Let's just bury our guilt and shame in a, in a sea of humanity. Let's just put it with humanity because, I mean, let's, let's look at everybody else. Let's see what everybody else is doing. I mean, a- after all... I mean, nobody's perfect. And, and, and by the way, you know, when, when I did those things, I, I was young. I, I was drunk. I was broke. I was lonely. I, I, I was angry. And, and all those things are true. But I, I try to bury it in this sea of humanity. And, 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 and that, that, so what can wash away my sins? Is there anything that can truly wash it away? Now, here's what it means. You see, washing it away means it actually lifts up and gets carried away. Washing it away means I no longer carry it, I no longer bury it, I no longer have it. Is there anything that can pick up my sins and actually move them so far out of my realm of being and thinking that I never have to deal with that again. Is there anything that can wash away my sins? So we try to bury it in the sea of humanity, and that doesn't work out so good. So the next thing that we try to do is because it's just too heavy. I mean, sin is heavy. So the next thing that we'll do is we'll just try to reduce it. Instead of calling it a sin, we'll call it a mistake. I, I, just, I just made these mistakes. But you and I know when we watch a politician on TV and the politician has just blown up his family and the politician has just embarrassed this whole city, you, you and I know whether it's a president with a White House intern or whether it's a, a mayor of Toronto's get caught smoking crack or a congressman from, from Tennessee who's had fraud and bribery, you all, we, we know that confessing a mistake just doesn't cut it. We know that it was bigger than a mistake because a mistake is something that you and I make on a math test, right? I mean, how many of us have not done well on a math test? Not because we didn't understand the concept. We just didn't add or subtract right, right? I mean, we, we, we've not, a mistake is what you do on a math test. A, a, a mistake is when I was supposed to turn right and I turn left. A mistake is when I, I checked the wrong box on a form because I wasn't reading it. That's a mistake. A mistake is the idea of insufficient information. But your sin was not insufficient information. For heaven's sakes, you bought plane tickets to go on your mistake. 
Hello. (laughs) You've been making that same mistake for five years. You've got that stash of mistakes at home. We plan our sin. We've strategized our sin. Is there anything that can wash away? Oh my gosh. We begin to feel like we're doomed. So we try to hide it in guilt and shame. Look at this next slide. We try to cover it with all these things. Well, maybe I'll just project this really wasn't my issue, it was her issue, it wasn't my issue, it was his issue. I don't have this problem, it's there. I just project, project, project. Now, it really, I'm going to minimize it, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, everybody else is doing it. Why, why is this a big deal? I'm going to fantasize about it, I'm going to blame excuse, I'm going to rationalize, or I'm even going to cover it up in religion. I'm going to get all religious. I'm going to cover up my sins in the name of God. Or I compare, I deny or I start to, to just to hide. I go undercover. I go under the radar with my sin, and nobody can see it, and nobody can experience it. So, so what, what do we do? We begin to feel like we're doomed, don't we? And, and, and we should. We should feel like we're doomed. Now, I think this is a little bit funny. Maybe nobody else in the room thinks it's funny, and if you don't think it's funny, I have an unsanctified sense of humor, and just accept that, Okay. But I think it's a little bit funny how for all those hundreds and thousands of years, they were trying to keep the law. They were trying to keep the commandments. They got the big 10, which some people could keep that. And they got another 613. And so all their life long, they're trying to keep the law. And they finally realized nobody can keep the law. We can't keep the law. Moses can't keep the law. Nobody was good enough. Daniel, nobody can keep the law. Everybody tried to keep the law, but nobody could keep the law. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. And Jesus takes the law that, was, that nobody could even keep, and he cranks the thing up about 18,000 different levels, and he's like up here. And Jesus said, all right, you know, You heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even look at a woman with lust. If you do that, you've committed adultery. Everybody's going, oh, crap, we're really in trouble now, you know. What what do we do now? I mean, we can't even, how how do we go forward with this? And Jesus said, you know, it used to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, give the guy your shirt. If he needs you to carry your coat, carry it two miles. And about revenge, now I don't hate people, but I want you to love them. I want you to pray for them. And they're all going, there is, we couldn't even do this. Yes. And now you've like, and that's the point. That was the whole point. Nothing that you do, nothing that you can be, nothing, you're doomed. What can wash away my sins? The law couldn't do it. And even the teachings of Christ, especially the teachings of Christ, wouldn't get you there. So Acts chapter 22 Verse 16 says this. It says, now, Saul, you've murdered. You murdered Stephen. You murdered one of the greatest spiritual leaders ever. Look at that. What are you waiting for? Saul, you've murdered. You've pulled people out of their houses. You're dragging people 130 miles from Damascus back to Jerusalem. Saul, you get to have your sins washed away. And I know what you're thinking. Because I'm thinking exactly the same thing when I was writing this sermon. How could this be possible? 
And you begin to think about the list of sins that you've committed. We don't need to go over that. That'll take about six weeks. We don't need to do that. We don't need to, I don't need to list now all the different 150 different ways you can sin. We get that. We're adults. There's something far more important. And this whole thing called sin, it, it sinks you. It, it has doomed you. But you were never designed to bury it, and you certainly can't carry it. You were never designed to bury your sin. And you were never designed because you can't carry it. You can't. You can try to ignore it. You can try to overcompensate, but you can't. You can't bury it, and you can't carry it. So after 400 years of silence, here comes this crazy guy named John the Baptist. He comes on the scene, and he begins preaching a baptism of repentance. And the whole Judean countryside comes out. Now, never before in history had anybody ever been baptized by somebody else. Baptisms up to this point were always you baptized yourself. You went into a pool and you baptized yourself. You went into some kind of a little tank and you baptized. This is the introduction, the foreshadowing of grace. You can't do it on your own. And so John the Baptist is now painting the picture of the future baptism that we would all participate in, that that somebody's got to baptize you. And the whole Judean countryside's coming out. Everybody's coming out to be baptized. Well, that freaked out the religious leaders because all these people are coming out. And so they said to John, who are you? Who the heck are you? Are you the Messiah? And John basically says, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He who was before me is really, you know, greater than I am. And he's the great one. And so John's just, you know, trying to tell them about that the Messiah was coming, the Messiah was coming, the Messiah was coming. And so John chapter 1, verse 29 says this. Like the very next day, the next day, John 1, 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he tells the whole crowd, Look, 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 look. That's the lamb. That's the lamb of God. And they got the word lamb. They all understood lamb because they took the lambs to the altar and they slayed their blood of these lambs and they tried to somehow appease God's anger, but it didn't work. They were still carrying their sins. They understood lamb. Because when Solomon dedicated the temple, they slaughtered 120,000 lambs. And the blood of these animals, everybody got it, that didn't take away your sins. It didn't have the potency, the power to take away sins. Here's John going, that's the guy, that's the man, that's the Messiah. That's the one who can take away your sins. He is the lamb. He is the lamb of God. And so in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, when Ananias asked Saul, Saul, I know you're a murderer. I know you destroyed the church. I know you tore up the church. I know you persecuted the church. I know you did this, 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 and this. But you get to have your sins washed away. 
get up, be baptized. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. And the Lord will forever change your life. You see, what, what is it that I want for you today? I don't want you to carry your sins. Can't. They're too heavy. They're not a mistake. He did them on purpose. I don't want you to bury your sins. That, that, that'll mess you up. That'll have you heavily medicated at some point. That'll, you'll drink it away. I don't want you to try to bury your sins. It doesn't work. It never has worked. But you have a Savior who loves you so much that he's willing to save you from all of your sins and wash them away. How can he do that? He does it by his blood. We're going to sing this song together. We're going to worship together. Will you sing this with us? So what can wash away? What can do it? What can wash away my sin? My sin. The blood of Jesus. That's who, and that's how, and that's where, and that's why. So again, today, I just want to remind you of three real quick things. Number one, these will be quick. Number one, this is why we do communion every Sunday. Every Sunday during communion, the Lord's Supper, we're grateful for what the blood did. His body and His blood removed all your sins, all my sins, past, present, and future. Too good to be true, too great to pass up. So every time we meet, we celebrate the power of the body and the blood of Jesus. Number two, this is why we do baptisms. We baptize some people here. We baptize a whole bunch of people out at Honeymoon Island Beach. Why, why do we do these baptisms? There's nothing magical about the water. There's nothing magical about the person baptizing you. But there's something very supernatural about the event. And the event is you participate in the greatest event in history, Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in Christian baptism, you are identifying with Christ. So every Sunday, we have Lord's Supper. We encourage you to be baptized. And step one, though, step one, I give my life to you, Jesus. I respond to you, Jesus. I allow you to wash away my sins. I can't carry them, and I'm tired of burying them. But I'm going to allow you to wash away all my sins. And so I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come down front to get into place. And I'm going to encourage you this morning. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you see, you'll never be good enough. Saul, on the day that he gave his life to Christ, he was a murderer. He was a guy persecuting the church. This is what makes Christianity different from every other faith. Every other faith try to get your sins forgiven, there's a whole laundry list of things that you have to do. Christianity says, you can't do it. You can't remove your own sins. That's why the blood of Jesus Christ is so important. So this morning, we invite you to come down front and give your life to Jesus. If you've never been baptized, 
we encourage you to symbolically identify with the greatest event in, in all of history. Let today be your day of growth. Let today be your day of salvation. Let today be the day where you walk out of here free and forgiven and full of peace and full of joy. Maybe there's other needs this morning. Maybe there's other prayer requests you'd like to have have one of our prayer partners. But we want you to walk out of here today free and in the right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? The blood. The blood of the Lamb of God. Father, we thank you so much for this story and how you've kept this story three different places, three different times in the book of this uh, of Acts, the history of the church. And we thank you, God, that Saul's story is our story. And my buddy from the Bronx, from the Bronx, New York, it's our story. It's everybody's story. And your grace reaches out to all of us in spite of all of our sins. We thank you. Now, Lord, let people come down front. Let them give their lives to you. Let them acknowledge that you are the Savior of the world and they receive your blood to wash away all their sins. Oh, we love you, Jesus. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. God bless you.